Some of us like to drive, some of us like to fly, some of us love taking the train. Today on the Lost in Transit podcast, I speak with a man who has seen the world from the seat of a bicycle. Nicholas Marino has put close to 50,000 miles on his bike, cycled all through Asia and all around Africa before returning to his now home, Australia, to cycle across the outback. Enough of my jibber-jabber. I hope you enjoy the interview. I'd like to welcome to the podcast, Nicholas Marino. What's up, Nick? Hey, how are you going, Spud? I'm going good. I'm going good. So um, I'd like to start at the beginning. You, yeah. before you were a cyclist, you were a backpacker. Is that right? Yeah. Well, let me clarify this. I don't feel I'm a cyclist at all. I, I just chose a bicycle as a means of transportation to travel the world, which in my mind, in essence, is totally different. It's different, yeah. But I basically was a backpacker for about 10 years until I discovered uh, the bicycle. And then uh, the rest is history, I would say. <laughs> what, uh, what compelled you to do the bike? Well, by the time I found, uh, by the time I met guys traveling by bicycle, I I, ha I had been traveling uh, for 10 years, as I said, and I felt I was missing some kind of in intensity, like the intensity that I had felt in the first years of backpacking. And my trips were kind of extreme always. And, um, and, and I felt I was missing something. And when I met these guys, that were traveling from Europe on the way to Asia, uh, it just blew me away. I, 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 I heard their stories and I was like, oh my God, that's, that's what I've got to do. This is the next step. I have to do this. And it was, it was so compelling uh, that, um, that I said, yeah, well, this is what I've got to do. And in one week's time, in Tehran, I was there at the time, I bought everything I needed and I converted to Cycle Traveler. Yeah. And then just straight away, you were a cycle traveler. Yeah, pretty much. Uh, it was extremely, extremely hard in the beginning. Like, just to give you an idea, in the first um, 100 meters, that's probably about, I don't remember the conversion, but think, uh, in, the first, in the first block, I fell five times because I couldn't control the bicycle uh, fully loaded. And the first, I would say, two, two to three months, the only thing I, I thought about all day on the road was, was actually how to sell everything back because I, I just, it was so miserable, the experience. It was so difficult. I knew nothing about bicycles and I knew I, I wasn't fit at all. I had no idea, you know, when you hear the stories and many, the stories that I could tell you right now, it's very hard to see. It's, it's very easy to be fascinated by them, but it's very, very hard to, to, to give you an idea of, of what goes on in the background. It's, it's like really, really hard sometimes. Yeah. Okay. So, yeah. Um, was there, was there any, any decision in the bicycle that you bought or was it just a bike that was available? Well, yeah, exactly. At, at that time, I was in Tehran and, mm -hmm. and I was a backpacker, right? So I had to, I, I went to a, to one of the best bicycle shops in town. I mean, Iran is pretty well stocked in, in all these things. There's a huge cycling community, so there is stuff available. Um, so I went with this uh, Dutch couple that was that were helping me choose uh, what I needed because I, I had no idea, right? 
So we went to a shop and chose the best possible bike. It was a $500 one. It was pretty good. Actually, all the components were pretty decent. So as far as the bicycle was concerned, there were, there were no problems, but the, um, the, the component, the gear, like the gear that I needed at, um, you know, uh, the camping gear, the panniers, all of that were, was crap. I mean, there, there weren't good stuff available. So I struggled with that in the beginning, but not with the bicycle itself. Okay. Okay. How much, uh, how much would you say the bike weighed at the beginning? Uh, Fully loaded, probably, uh, probably about a hundred pounds. Maybe oh. it was pretty light. Okay. I mean, it still seems like it's a lot, but for traveling uh, like that. Well, maybe we are getting a bit ahead, but at the last bit of my trip here in Australia, Mm -hmm. uh, it was about 250 pounds. (laughs) Holy cow, that's a lot. It is a lot, yeah, because of all the water that I needed to to carry. Oh, okay, across the outback? Yeah, exactly. Okay. Um, So from Turan, where, where did you head? I basically continued with the trip that I had in mind because I was taking a sabbatical for one year and my plan, my original plan was to head China overland okay. and settle in, in Asia. Uh, so, so I basically continued that way and I was uh, going across the countries that I hadn't been before because I had been to East Asia and I had been to Europe until Turkey. And uh, so I basically followed the Central Asia route, uh, which uh, includes uh, Turkmenistan, Uzbekistan, Kyrgyzstan, uh, Western China, Pakistan, India, Sri Lanka, and then I flew to Thailand, and from there I made my way to Shanghai. Oh. Um, and that, that was 2006. That that route became very popular in the last years, but at that time there were very few people doing it. Okay, so you were a pioneer, so to speak. Uh, kind of, yeah. I, li- I like it. That's awesome. That's very awesome. <laughs> yeah. Um, so then how long did you take off before your next big bike trip? Uh, well, I settled in China after that. And um, um, during my, I, sp- I lived around six years in China. And while I was living there, especially in the second part, because uh, I lived in I lived in Shanghai first, then I moved to Sydney, and then I went back to China. And when I went back, I, I moved to Chengdu. And Chengdu is right next to the Tibetan Plateau. So during the four years that I spent in Chengdu, I would cycle all over the Tibetan Plateau into the most remote regions of it. And, um, and that, was, that was kind of the master's, or even more, it was like the PhD in adventure. Because, you know, when I... The, the first trip had been tough because I wasn't prepared. But when I was living in China, I, I said, when I, when I moved to, to Chengdu, I said to myself, okay, I don't know where I'm, when I'm going to live, but uh, I know that when I live, it's going to be by bicycle. So I prepared, you know, during those years, I would do a lot of extreme trips uh, across um, the Tibetan Plateau, which I consider my place in the world and, 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 and other parts of China as well. Um, so I cycled all over there and then, uh, in 2012, I finally started the, so, so it was about between, I finished the first trip in 2007 and I, uh, I traveled all over the, these regions that I told you during those years. And then in 2012, I left again, 
um, for the last trip. And that last trip was three years? Was five years. It was five years. Yeah, continuous. <laughs> so it was, it was like five sabbaticals. <laughs> that is incredible. Um, yeah. And that, that trip took you through Asia again, through the Middle East and around Africa? Uh, it Basically, I... I had never been to Africa. I had spent nine, nine years of my life in Asia in between traveling and living and, and working and all that. So Africa was like a big question mark for me. I, I, I had, and I had been all through the Americas pretty much, except for Central America. I've been all over South America. I mean, I'm, I'm from Argentina. So, so I know the region. I had been all over Asia. I had been to Australia. So Africa was like, oh, okay, this is, this is what's, what, where I had to go next. Cause I, I didn't know what it would be like. So, so yeah, I basically planned the whole trip, uh, around Africa, but I was in China. So, um, before getting to Africa, I cycled all over the Island regions of, of Asia. That is, uh, well, Japan, which is not yeah, Japan, Korea, um, Indonesia, the Philippines, I spent between those four, I spent, uh, nine months, then Mongolia, which was uh, quite extraordinary. Then other parts of China, then India, Nepal. And from, from India, uh, I flew to Cairo and then, then from Cairo, I went to Cape town, uh, along the East coast. And from Cape town, I went up to Morocco and, and, and Europe along the West coast. So, yeah, so I spent, I spent two, two and a half years alone in, in Africa. Uh, that was like 30,000 miles, something like that. Wow. Yeah. That's nuts. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Um, so being out biking and kind of being in the elements, did you ever get sick? Did you ever pick up any strange diseases, anything like that? Um, I, I picked up a few things very, I mean, you, you think that you're going to get in like really, really serious stuff, but, um, honestly it wasn't that bad. I think exposed to the elements, um, I'd say the, the most, um, the, the first, the first close call that I had was, a was a thunderstorm, a, a, an electric storm in, in Southern Africa, in, in Lesotho. And that almost killed me. It was, uh, it was extremely, extremely dangerous. The, the situation I was in and I really, I saw my whole life passing before my eyes. It was really extreme. I was, I, I even wrote in, in those extreme conditions, I even wrote, uh, a note for my family cause I knew I was going to die. Uh, then after that, there were several encounters with, with wild animals that again, Two and the, the second and third close calls. The first one was with lions. The second, the, the third one was with elephants and and snakes in 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 the jungle. And then I got sick. Um, I got sick once. Uh, uh, yeah, I got sick. I had I got shigella, which is like a form a very rough uh, type of dysentery. Uh, that was in Ethiopia. But, um, but that was relatively easy to, to cure. And the second, uh, the second thing that I caught that was kind of serious, not, not life threatening, but it was really, really horrible. I got a bacterial infection on my legs that started spreading all over my body. 
And that was after three months across the equatorial rainforest in Central Africa, Ex- really extreme three months. And, um, and by the time I was, I was uh, almost out of it, I had lost, um, what is it, like four, uh, 15 pounds. Um, you know, I had no vitamins, I had no proteins. I, I was really, really malnourished. So, and, and in, the, in the rainforest, nothing really heals because you're, it's always humid. I was always with mud up, uh, uh, up to my waist sometimes. It was, you're, you know, almost permanently filthy. So nothing heals. So whatever you've got, whatever wound you get, it will get infected and there's no way to, to stop the infection. So I got this bacterial infection and it started spreading all over my body. It, it turned into impetigo, which is impetigo is like when you get an infection and you're like, let's say you get a wound in your, in your ankle, then you scratch it or even you, you rub it to clean it, but then you scratch your arm and, th- and a new wound opens up in your, in your, in your arm. And, and it's, it's, it keeps spreading all over your body and it's impossible to stop. So that was, um, that was really nasty. It, it's, I, I needed a, a 12 day, 12 days uh, antibiotic treatment and, and it, it was really bad. Did you, but, yeah, no, nothing, nothing really life threatening, but something that had to be treated because it was like serious. With, yeah. with this impetigo, did you then have to stop for the 12 days while you were on the antibiotics? No, not really. But, um, but I did stop because I was, you know, carrying a lot of, uh, accumulated, um, exhaustion. I was, I was pretty much exhausted by the time I reached Lagos in Nigeria. It had been already like five months of extreme conditions. And yeah, I, I, I found a couch surfer from South Africa living in Lagos and, and he hosted me for, uh, for like 10 days in his very big house, very good conditions, air conditioned. Uh, he had a cook that cooked for me and I was able to treat myself. And in Lagos, there were pharmacies that didn't have fake, uh, medicines, which is common all over Africa. So I got the proper t- treatment and, and I got up in no time. I was. I was already, you know, I, I recovered pretty quickly. I'm, I'm very, very strong by, by this time. So that's, yeah, yeah, that's great. Um, so on an average day, how far would you say that you would biked? It, it re- it's really, it's really hard to say because, you know, in normal conditions, you go about maybe 60, 70 miles a day. Okay. Um, at, like that would be normal conditions, right? That would be, uh, tarmac, relatively flat, very few, uh, uphills, uh, very few climbs. And, um, that would be a good average. Maybe 50 miles would be a good average. However, there were times in the, um, in across the jungle, like in Congo that I would go for like, it would take me, uh, 10 hours of pushing across the, the, the mud to do, to pull off maybe seven, eight miles. And, and yeah, it, it would be like all day pushing for, for days. Um, sometimes I needed in, like in, in North, Northwestern Kenya, I would need, um, seven days to pull off 60 miles, 70 miles. Oh. Right. So that's a full week of going, um, 
uh, in extreme conditions. And that, that applies to pretty much every extreme that I've been to, whether it's high altitude in, in Tibet or, uh, you know, across the snow or, or across the desert or across the jungle. Uh, yeah. I, I get into really nasty situations. It, it sounds like it's pretty extreme. Yeah, sometimes it is. Um, okay, so with the impetigo and the lions and the elephants, what would you say were some of the hardest moments on your travels? Uh, <laughs> you're going to laugh at this. Uh, for two years of in this trip, I traveled with my ex-girlfriend. And uh, I was pretty much in love with her. I, you know, she was the one for me, right? She was, she was traveling with me. We, we had a, a very, uh, a very nice thing going. And for me, that it's so hard to fall in love with someone. It, you know, having yeah. her was, you know, incredible. It was like a dream come, uh, come true. But she left me, and those months after she left me were like really, really. Um, really tough. I, I, I still have no idea how I had the strength to, to keep cycling. Cause there were times that I was going insane. And like sometimes in the middle of nowhere, I'm, you know, you're surrounded by natural beauty and it's extremely, um, it's just, it's a very, uh, uh, incredible landscape you're going, uh, in, and then, uh, you cannot see anything cause your mind is, is totally blocked. And, and those those months were were extremely hard, were were the most challenging because that that was the first, the the first and probably probably the only one time where I felt um, I didn't want to keep going. Maybe I don't know. I I I don't think I would never I would have never uh, stopped. But at that time I felt like there was no reason to continue because I was totally um, I, I was my mind was totally blocked. So yeah, that was the hardest. That was really the hardest. The rest is fun. I mean, no matter how hard it is, it's fun. Yeah. Uh, I, yeah. Okay. Okay. Um, and you, you never wanted to, you never wanted to stop after. No, 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 I didn't want to stop. I, I kept going. I don't, I don't know where I got the strength for that. Uh, but yeah, I, I basically kept going and, and I'm glad I did because I would have regretted it. Right? Yeah. I mean, the trip in general sounds like it was great. Yeah. Yeah. It was, it, it was uh, a life changing experience. Absolutely. Uh, so for a trip like this for bicycling and I would assume you camped most of the time. Yeah. Uh, I, I, yeah, I camped, I camped a lot, uh, but I, I, hospitality is a huge thing in, in Asia, in Africa and, and pretty much all, all over the world. Um, but, um, you know, people invite you into their homes and, and this is like very, very frequent in Africa, in Africa, every village becomes your home and people make you feel at home. So, so I, I didn't come as much as, as one uh, would think. Okay. Yeah. Um, how did, how did you budget for a trip this long? Um, it's, yeah, this is, this is, of course, this is the, the question that I get the most. Uh, some people think you've got to be a millionaire, but just to give you an idea, um, I, I spent an average of about a hundred dollars a month, um, 
during during at least during the whole trip in Africa. Sometimes I would spend three hundred. Like in Southern Africa, you've got more things. You want to eat better, and um, it's more developed, so so you have access to things. So I I would spend maybe three hundred in a month. So that's about ten bucks a day. Um, the rest of the way was a hundred bucks. Uh, sometimes I would go across countries in like 25, 28 days and I would spend like the lowest I spent was $17 in 28 days across Angola because people were just so incredibly uh, hospitable that, that they, you know, they, they would invite you all the time you, you didn't have money. You, you didn't have, um, things in which to spend money. Okay. So I basically saved, I saved, uh, for, for the, all those years that I uh, that I um, I'm, uh, uh, that I worked in China, I'm an architect, so I made pretty good money in China. Cost of living is very low, so so I was able to save a lot. And uh, aside from that, I I started making money with photography. I'm a professional photographer, and um, I, I you know with with such a low budget, um, just selling a few interviews or or stories or, or photos to magazines, I would make enough to keep going uh, w- without having to ask to use my, my savings. So oh, it, it really, the budget really depends on your standards as well. If you're expe- expecting uh, a lot of uh, comfort, you're, of course you're not going to travel uh, with, tem- uh, with two bucks a day. But if, you, if you're humble and you're more into the experience, uh, on top of everything for me, the luxury is, is the traveling itself is being able to be on the road. So, so yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty basic. <laughs> um, yeah. That's all you, right. you don't need a lot of money if you don't want to. Yeah. I've, I've done some budget traveling, not, I've never had a bike, but I've definitely gotten by on five, $10 a day. Exactly. Yeah. It's, it's very possible. Um, yeah, and absolutely. I mean, cycling has to be the great, like one of the greatest ways. Cause it's basically absolutely. free transportation. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and sleeping, I mean, you, 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 you either come or, or people invite you into the home. So you, you never, I think I, I don't know. I, I've probably paid for accommodation like 10 times in five years. It's like 10 it's times. Yeah. Wow. Maximum. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That is, and and I think and I think that's a lot. <laughs> it's it's way less than I would have expected. That's for sure. Yeah, oh, really? Yeah. No, for me it's way more. I I should have paid like three times in my <laughs> mind. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Um. So on the topic of budgets and staying, where was where was some of the favorite your favorite places to camp? Uh, well, that's, that's an easy one. Like Mongolia is like, it's, it's like a dream come true. Mongolia is like the biggest campsite in the world. It's the whole country is a campsite and it's a dream. Uh, Mongolia is one of them. Tibet is another one. Uh, even here in Australia, it's really, uh, fantastic. As, As soon as you're out of the cities, it's just unbelievable. The whole country is a camping ground. Uh, then Namibia is spectacular as well. All of the Sahara Desert is, is also incredible. Um, but I'd say if I had to choose um, two really spectacular ones, uh, spectacular ones would be uh, Tibet and Mongolia, and uh, and maybe 
Australia or Southern Africa? Because I'm, um, is is this? Uh, these are places where you have no electricity for hundreds of miles around you, and you you can see the stars as you've never seen them before. It's just really really amazing when you're in the middle of nowhere in these places and nights become surreal that they're they're otherworldly yeah was there any specific part of mongolia or tibet that stand out to you or is it just kind of in general they're incredible yeah usually it's generally like mongolia is, is incredible all over um i would say that the heart of the country in the in the triangle region between Ulaanbaatar, uh, Lake Hosvol, and Lake Tarhintsagan, all that that part, which is the heart of the steppe, is just it's it's so dreamy you cannot even believe you're you're there. And this is only two months, uh, two or three months a year, because the rest of the year is just unbearably cold. It's it's a land of extremes. So, but during during those two three months of summer, it's just it becomes. Um, incredible just simply uh, breathtaking okay very cool i uh i i got to experience a little bit of mongolia last year and i i loved it so much yeah yeah you can imagine by bicycle when you go along the step i i don't know how you travel but it's one of those countries that you want to have your 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 own means of transport because um the country itself almost has no proper roads so you're you're always you're always on on tracks that were carved by the nomads along centuries centuries. Yeah. So so yeah, it's if, if you haven't been with your own transport, I would highly advise you to to go back on maybe a motorcycle if you're if you don't want to cycle or or some some sort of uh, transportation. We had we had there was a couple of us and we had rented a van, and it was okay. It was it was pretty incredible yeah exactly I, i've it was by far the best part of my that trip that i had taken and i tell people all the time and they're like mongolia really yeah <laughs> yeah i think people have no idea in general what what mongolia looks like yeah, um, I, yeah. I kind of agree when you're doing this cycling travel how yeah. much how much photo gear do you take oh i carry quite a lot of gear because you know, when I started this last trip, um, I had been I have been a photographer for almost twenty years now, and um, for this trip, I made it. Even though traveling is is a priority and still is, um, I wanted to to professionally document all the experience, and not only the experience, but most importantly, all the people that came my way. Uh, I'm mostly a documentary photographer, so so I. I knew that for that I needed my my professional gear. So you know, there's always a compromise, and uh, I want I pretty much wanted no compromises. So I took all the professional gear. It's very heavy. It's probably about I don't know. It's I think it's around thirty pounds, including all the shit that you need to to be a photographer on the road, which is camera and lenses, and then the laptop to edit and uh the hard drives for backup all the chargers and uh you know all the all the the the, the things you need so yeah it's i i carry everything i i made no compromises and and it was totally worth it because you know i was able to capture 
the sort of images that I wanted to capture. Yeah. That's what, that's, what's important. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so when you're in these remote places and you're trying to document it, how, how do you go about talking to talking to locals and getting portraits if that's something that you do? And yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I'm, 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 I do mostly portraiture, uh, documentary photography and, and portraiture. And, uh, it's, um, I think it all, it's, it all has to do uh, on how you relate to people in the first place. This is something I give workshops, and this is this is something I always stress. Um, for me, the reason why I approach people is not to get the photo as a trophy, you know, as a as a as a uh, reward. For me, photography, as important as it is uh, to me, it comes second when it when it comes to people. Um, I approach people because I'm genuinely interested in, in their lives, in who they are. I, I approach people to share my life with them. Um, so, so photography, one, once you, you establish this, uh, this connection with, with whoever comes your way that you find interesting, uh, then photography comes easy. It's just a concept, direct consequence of, of the, of the connection you establish with this, with these people and, uh, how I communicate. Well, I, I speak almost seven languages myself fluently. Oh my God. And I, I, yeah. And I understand quite, a, uh, uh, quite, you know, many others, um, every, everywhere I get the first thing as I, as soon as I cross the border, I start asking, you know, the base, how to say the basic questions in the local languages. So, so I, and I write it down and as soon as I cross the border, I start greeting people in their local language. It really opens. This is something, uh, you know, I always tell, I, I have a lot of American friends, of course, and, and, and I, I always tease them because they're so fucking lazy, right? Yeah, I, <laughs> I, I will 100% admit that. <laughs> exactly. So, so I always tease them because, um, you know, you gotta make an effort, um, to, to communicate with people in their local languages, because it makes all the difference. Um, when you, when people see you, uh, making the effort to communicate, they see this as a sign of empathy, you know, and they, they really appreciate it. And they, they see the, the, especially in places where, where, where language is, is known to be difficult, they will try even to help you and teach you. So I do that. And then when everything fails, when, when nobody speaks the languages that I speak, then, so as I said, either I ask to maybe somebody who speaks some, some of the languages that I speak or uh, sign language, you know, you, you, you'd be, you'd be really, really amazed at how, uh, how far you can communicate just because you're, you're a human being, right? It's, yeah. it's, it's all these, um, um, gestures that we have that convey expressions and feelings that make it so easy to communicate. Most of, uh, uh, language, most of communication is nonverbal and, and you can really, uh, see that when you're, when you're traveling in places where, where you don't understand the language. So yeah, that's, that's pretty much how I do it. (laughs) All right. All right. Um, you said you speak seven languages fluently? I, I speak six and I'm studying the seventh and eighth 
at the same time. <laughs> uh, what languages are they? So, uh, Spanish, mother tongue, then English, uh, uh, German, French, uh, Portuguese, Chinese, and now I'm studying Tibetan and I'm studying Italian. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That, that definitely makes me feel lazy. <laughs> <laughs> well, you got an excuse. You guys who are born native English speakers, uh, you 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 were already born in a very easy position. Yeah, doesn't excuse it, but uh, but yeah. No, I I like to refer to us as lazy tongued. <laughs> yeah, I think so. <laughs> that's that's yeah. I'm I'm amazed. I I don't think I've ever met anybody who can speak seven or eight languages. <laughs> yeah um okay so one last thing before we come to a close here yeah um if you had any advice for anybody out there who wants to travel in general be it yeah you know, what would you tell them um i would tell them you know it wouldn't be anything practical but i would say to travel with an open heart and an open mind i think that's um, you know, some people these days, some people tend to think that traveling, uh, traveling itself uh, will change your life. And I don't think it will. I've, I've come to know a lot of other travelers who've been on the road for decades and it feels as though they haven't learned anything. Uh, so I think the attitude with, with which you, you set off to travel is essential for the trip and the and um, for the traveling experience to become uh, really relevant in your life. So staying open, um, being like a sponge, meaning absorb everything. Don't try to impose your views on others. Uh, this is, a, this is again, it's not for the sake of criticism, but as I said, I have a lot of American friends and I always talk about these things openly. Mm -hmm. uh, some, some, some people are very, tend to, to believe that they have the universal truth. And this is very common in, in what I've seen in many Americans, not all, not all of them, of course. Um, but in, in societies that are very developed, um, they tend to believe that they, you know, they know better than others. So this is very, very bad um, for traveling. I think we should always stay open. You know, I've been in situations, many situations where I don't necessarily agree with, with the people I'm, I'm, I'm interacting with, but there's always something to learn. And, and, and for me, humility is extremely important. So I don't try to impose, I can share my way of seeing things and I can debate about it, but I won't try to convince anyone that what I know and what I the way I live is the best one. So yeah, stay open, stay open, be, be a sponge, be ready to, to absorb and, and be open to be changed by, by the experience to be changed by what people could teach you. Um, that, that would be my best advice. The rest is easy. You know, it's just, <laughs> it's just flow. Yeah. Very awesome. Very cool. <laughs> so if you could, Tell us where everybody can follow along with your adventures and yeah. So, so I have my own website, um, in there you have access to all my photography, my, my traveling stories and, uh, and all the social media links. 
Um, the website is uh, www.nicolasmarino, uh, and Nicolas without the H, so it's the Spanish version of the name, nicolasmarino.com. And then, then there's the Instagram. I and I, I post frequently on Instagram on Marino Nicolas uh, at Marino Nicolas, and then Facebook Nicolas Marino photographer. If yeah, if, if you go to my website, all the links are there. Or if you search me on Google, the first three pages are about myself. <laughs> so <laughs> excellent. Um, and then one more question: Do you have any uh, upcoming travel plans? Uh, not for now, but I mean, I'm always concocting, uh, adventures in my mind. Um, but for now I'm, I'm settled. It's been, you know, five years. So I've, I've had enough for, for the time being. Uh, so I'm taking it easy, um, living a more stable life. And then, yeah, I have a lot of dreams, a lot of extreme dreams. <laughs> so I'll probably be on the road eventually. So sooner or later, I'm definitely going into different adventures. One that I that it's been crossing my mind it would be to to um, cross Africa from west to east, but uh, using a canoe along its its greatest river. Oh, wow! Um, a, a dugout canoe. Uh, so that that would be one of the things that that it's in my mind already. Okay. Uh, whether I'm going to do it or not, I don't know, but. You know, I never, I never knew that I was doing uh, that. I was going to do the things that I've done. So, you know, it's a, every every everything is possible. Yeah. yeah, that would be that would be very very interesting to watch. Yeah, to follow along with absolutely. Excellent. <laughs> well, again, I'd like to thank you, Nico, for doing this. Thank you very much. Thank yeah. Thank you very much for your interest. Uh, and for me, it's always uh, great to share. You know, to share people. Uh, these things with people because I I believe that we we can live differently. We don't have to be in the hamsters oh, wheel yeah. uh, as, as we are taught uh, since we are born. So yeah, it's always a pleasure to show that you know anyone can do these things as long as you want to do it to to do them. Very cool. Yeah. Very cool. Awesome. Well, thank Great. you, man. Thank you, man. It's been a pleasure to talk to you. You can read these stories and you can hear them come out of someone's mouth, but you can never really wrap your head around it. I'm still astonished by the things that Nico has done, and I'll never really have a grasp on any of it, really. I love that he's sort of conjuring up a dugout canoe trip across Africa. That would be so incredible to see unfold. Remember to follow Nico on Instagram. His Instagram is Marino Nicholas. It's N-I-C-O-L-A-S. Check out his website, nicolasmarino.com. There's tons of good stories on there to read, incredible photos. I have nothing but amazing things to say about all of it. I will say that when I started this podcast, or started thinking about this podcast, Nico was definitely the first person that came to my mind that I wanted to interview. So doing this was a huge thing for me. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I enjoyed talking to him. And yeah, that concludes another episode of the Lost in Transit podcast. Be sure to check us out on social media, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, all Lost in Transit PC. Um, shoot us an email if you have any questions, comments, concerns, have any ideas for guests who could be on the show. The email is lostintransitpc at gmail.com. 
And until next time, folks, get lost. Get lost.